focusing on this particular topic today for one of all the obvious reasons. It continues to be in the, the news and headline, but so few people who are writing what we're reading and scripting what we're hearing on the television have ever been to Yemen. Obvious reasons. It continues. Perhaps as recently as 20 years ago, didn't know whether Yemen was animal, vegetable, or mineral. But we're, <laughs> we're playing catch-up ball here, and this afternoon is an effort to uh, raise the level of knowledge and understanding with appropriate information and insight by a team of five extraordinary uh, people. We have two who have been career uh, diplomats uh, for the United States. Upcoming uh, scholars, uh, they've already proven their scholarly work, but they're a couple of decades uh, younger than the, the seasoned ones here. My job here is to uh, put this in terms of uh, context and the back, background and perspective as to why uh, Yemen is so singularly unique among the Arab countries, those in the Middle East, those in the Islamic world. This will, next month will be my 40th year of going to Yemen and living there and, and doing research there and trying to be a better, more knowledgeable person about it here. Uh, but the country, uh, let's be frank, is, is massively poor in many of its uh, components. On the other hand, it's, it's massively and pervasively rich in terms of culture, in terms of history, in terms of archi architecture. It's a nation of builders, and it's rich as well poetically. And though it may not seem so, given the focus of today's emphasis, it is also rich in terms of the history of its systems of governance and its political dynamics. Ponder the following, and you will, I think, be able to infer why there are so few books in the English language written by Westerners on the dynamics and systems of governance of the country. Less than half a century ago, it was Great Britain's only crown colony in the Arab world. So when people talk about British colonialism in the Arab world, there was only one colony. It was 80 square miles and it divested itself of that in November of 1967. All of the other imperial relationships were something quite different, formatically, structurally, and nominally as, as well. In addition to that small little outpost in Arabia, there was a vast hinterland uh, broken up into two administrative areas, one called the Western Aden Protectorate, another called the uh, Eastern Aden Protectorate. And within those two, there were at least four sultanates and there was one Sharifdom, and within it as well, in terms of Aden, was the Aden Trade Union Congress. Uh, this was the most uh, uh, nonviolent, effective, well-organized, and led trade union movement to come out of, of the Arab East. Uh, it would rival only the ones in Tunisia and Morocco uh, in, in the West. It also served as an outpost of empire for the British, uh, for the Soviets, and for a small chapter, you can say, not empire in terms of Egypt, but Egypt had some 70 to 80,000 soldiers in Yemen during the 1960s uh, when the imamate uh, was overthrown and the Republic of Yemen uh, began. And it's also been a creature in terms of international commerce and maritime trade because of Aden's port. Up until the 1950s, Aden's port was in the top five every single year in terms of ship's calling and tonnage uh, handle. If Herodotus, much quoted statement about Egypt, had some truth that Egypt is the gift of the Nile, 
after 1869, certainly Aden was the gift uh, of, of the Suez Canal. It's been rich, too, in terms of its political parties. This is the only country in the Arab world in history that once had, in a portion of it, a Marxist-Leninist-oriented regime in the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen. Uh, next year will be the 40th year that I was the first and only American Fulbright Fellow in the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen. My wife and I were the only two Americans that they allowed in the country uh, to conduct field research. So I've been going back ever since, and I'm happy to be here today. But it's not just this aspect of Yemen's uniqueness, but it's people in terms of human resources. You can find them throughout all of Arab North Africa, uh, throughout Egypt, throughout the Levant, throughout the Fertile Crescent, throughout the Gulf Cooperation Council countries, in large numbers in places like Jeddah, for example. But equally so in Southeast Asia, up until about 15 years ago, amongst the prime ministers, the ministers of education, the ministers of interior, the foreign uh, minister, and the governor of Jakarta, all touted their roots coming from Yemen and in Malaysia as well. So to begin with, we have uh, Ambassador Barbara Bodine um, putting us into a more recent context. We're looking for analysis and assessments and to leave this session more knowledgeable and informed than when we began by Revolution. Okay. You're lightning beneath us. I want to thank you all for coming today. Um, uh, Yemen is a, is a unique and interesting little country, not so little, really, um, whose Profile in this town has a tendency to wax and wane. Um, it is either almost the center of the universe in terms of our security concerns, or it is, as John put it, uh, people aren't sure if it's animal, vegetable, or mineral. Um, my history goes, of Yemen goes back at least to the part where there were two Yemens, not three. And um, I congratulate uh, John and his staff for trying to see if we can get what we need to know about Yemen into an hour and a half. <laughs> Um, much of the history that John uh, provided uh, was absolutely, yeah, it was certainly accurate, but it had tend tended to be a little Aiden-centric. <laughs> um, and yes, it was, Aiden was the only crown colony. It is one of the most uh, beautiful natural harbors in the world. But the, the center of gravity, if you like, in, in Yemen um, is what used to be North Yemen. It's where the bulk of the population lives. Uh, and it is, to a certain extent, a bulk where many of the, the problems and the issues reside. And what was once North Yemen, while the South was either a British colony or British protectorate, uh, was one of the last of the, of the medieval theocracies. And a system of government the North Yemenis were only able to get rid of uh, in the 1960s. But I think it's important to remember these three different histories uh, to what we now think of as Yemen. Um, one, the, the northern portion, um, a medieval theocracy until the 60s, only about 50 years ago. Aden, uh, a British crown colony, and then in some ways a Soviet crown colony. Uh, and then the protectorates off to the east, uh, which operated in a very traditional manner. And what Yemen has been trying to do since 1990 is to craft these three very different histories together in one functioning state. 
Uh, I don't think anybody, including any Yemeni I know, would say that it has been an overwhelming success at this point. And Yemen is often described as the always almost failing state. It has been the always almost failing state for at least 30 years that I have been working on it. So the two questions are, why is it always almost failing? And the second one would be, why hasn't it? Um, it is always almost failing because of land size, because of the poverty that John mentioned. Um, it is a country devoid of natural resources in any meaningful way except for people. Uh, it is rugged uh, in a way that but the only country that would be analogous to Americans that might know now would be Afghanistan. Um, it has almost every physical and economic uh, strike against it. Um, what it has going for it, and I think what has held it together, and this is a, a point that we need to remember, is that unlike uh, the, the simple templates that people bring up, certainly in the press as I've been reading it, uh, trying to make a comparison to Iraq, trying to make a comparison to Afghanistan, trying to make a comparison to Somalia, to look at what actually distinguishes Yemen from these other states and what may keep it from failing. One is that there is a very strong sense of national identity. Um, one of the things that struck me in the four years I was ambassador is that if I went up to Sada, and I did, um, out to Socotra, off to Mahra, into Marib, or any place else that I visited, that although you could certainly see the different, uh, the long history of Yemen in the face of the Yemenis, there was very strong um, acceptance of themselves, a self-identification as Yemenis, and a very strong acceptance of the other guy as the Yemenis. So the people in Sada accepted the people in Socotra, who accepted the people in Aden, and on and on very strong national identity, which you don't normally have in a failed state. They do not have the sectarian divisions that we identify with Iraq. Yes, there are Zaydis and yes, there are Shafis, but it is not the same kind of sectarian divide. Um, in the days when there were two Yemens, a goodly portion of the southern Yemeni cabinet, the Soviets, were northerners. A goodly portion of the members of the cabinet in the north were southerners. Uh, it is a, a country where there has been great mobility and fluidity of population. Um, and they did get cell phones while I was there. Um, unfortunately. Um, so it has, it has centripetal forces as well as centrifugal forces, and I think we need to focus on those. A couple of, of conventional lessons that get thrown out talking about Yemen. One is that Yemen in general and, and President Ali Abdullah muddle through. Um, another one I heard recently is Ali Abdullah is only the mayor of Sana'a. Uh, and a third, of course, is that it is a, a tribal society and cannot possibly function as a centralized state. Again, it is therefore doomed to fail. And I'd just like to talk about, uh, briefly on a couple of these as, as a setup to the rest of the panel. Um, does the president and does Yemen muddle through? Yes, I think that would probably be the best description of how they handle things. I would say also that most politicians muddle through. Uh, unless we are getting back to Zara's policies, um, most politicians, to the extent that they are dealing with multiple power centers and, and a broad geographic area, are going to muddle through. I would, I would, if I was going to use an analogy, I would probably describe a juggler with plates. 
Um, and every one of those plates is up there spinning. Not every plate is spinning at its optimum speed at all times, and the juggler is not able to give every plate its their preferred level of attention. The question is, are there too many plates, and can he keep them all going so that they don't crash? So far, yes. The question will always be, will there be one more plate, or will there be outside forces and outside interference? that trips up either the juggler or starts knocking the plates down. But the muddling through is probably how Yemen will continue to survive politically. It is a country made up of a number of um, power centers, economic centers, social centers, and they are going to have to be juggled constantly. Um, is the government only a mayoralty and not, a, and not really a central government? I'm not sure I fully agree with that. I think there is what my embassy once described as primordial federalism. Um, I suppose a social scientist would call it a kind of primordial decentralization. Um, but there is an understanding that the central government has a certain role, providing basic services, providing legitimacy, but that the day-to-day -day operation at the local level is left to local political parties. And um, if I was going to make an analogy, I would probably mention something like Montana. Uh, there isn't really a question of the sovereignty of the state. There isn't a fundamental challenge uh, to the government. There is a very strong sense that we can take care of our own business and we will take care of our own services. But the idea that um, these outer edges are, are have secessionist, deeply held secessionist, successfully secessionist uh, views, I don't think is, is, is accurate. One example I would give is that while I was there, we did go through the period of, of tribal kidnappings. And in trying to explain the kidnappings to Washington, uh, it was always very interesting to have to say that this is not an attempt to extort money. This is not as we would have perhaps in Colombia. It wasn't even an effort to try to push the government out. It was actually an effort to try to bring the government in. That uh, what they were demanding was more government service, more government attention, uh, not less. That's counterintuitive to what everything Washington was thinking. Uh, is it a tribal society? It is, but I would probably prefer to call it clan or familial. Um, it is relationships that everyone in the government has. And to get into this mindset that, again, I have heard and read recently, that you have the tribes versus Sanaa, you have the tribes versus the government, um, I think shows a, a lack of appreciation for how the social dynamic there operates. Um, everybody is tribal and everybody in some way is a part of the government. To get into a simplistic tribal definition of Yemeni society could lead us very badly to an idea that we could set up something like the Sons of Iraq. And I think that that would be disastrous for both Yemen uh, and for us. Um, what should we be doing broadly? I'm going to leave it to my colleague, uh, Ambassador LaRocco, to get into some specifics. But I would say that, on balance, um, the best role that we can play, uh, and the one that, from my most recent trip to Yemen, certainly what I heard, is to find ways to assist the Yemen government to, and to work with the central government on how you extend, extend the legitimacy of the state and the, the, the legitimacy of the government. And I don't put this solely in terms of extending the legitimacy of Ali Abdullah or any other particular person or party, but of the government and the state more broadly. The difference between extending the authority of the state 
course, is primarily military and security. What I'm talking about is the legitimacy, the basic social services, the education, the health, uh, the sense that the state is somehow involved. I listened to uh, General McChrystal on the radio today talking about what we're trying to do in Afghanistan. I think we all know what we did and did not do in Iraq. And I think what we need to do is take many of the lessons on post-conflict reconstruction in Iraq and Afghanistan and try to apply them before we get to a crisis, before we get to a failed state in Yemen using all of the various tools. I'm going to stop there because I'm sure I am need time for my colleagues. Thank you. Thank you, Barbara. Next, Dr. Christopher. Good morning. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank the National Council for the opportunity to, to come out and talk to you all, and especially all of you for showing up to uh, talk about again, which is increasingly a more and more important subject for, for us to uh, uh, discuss. I think I'd, I'd like to start out by um, relating a conversation I had last week with, with someone who made the point that you know what's going on in Yemen right now. We've seen this movie before, and we know how it ends, and we're actually watching it right now. And I think this is probably a very uh, uh, scary thing to, to think about. And I guess I should say I'm really sorry because every conversation I have about Yemen, I end up getting depressed. So I'd like to apologize to all of you because I'm sure this is going to be um, a little bit more of a downer than I'd like it to be. <laughs> I think if people understand why Yemen is a priority, right? And I think the more, the more and more uh, discussions I have with national security or foreign policy people, they talk about Yemen second only to Afghanistan and Pakistan in terms of a national priority for terrorism and security. And while I think terrorism and security is a very important topic, one that Greg's going to get into in much more detail, I don't think terrorism security should be the primary focus for our thinking on Yemen. And I think if there's no easy or no good options right now, there are fewer and fewer and uh, worse options when we look forward. I think you know, most people understand what we want to avoid in Yemen. We want to avoid state failure or state collapse. However, I don't know anybody who can tell you what state failure in Yemen looks like or what the event or events will be that will trigger that. So this kind of leaves an important dilemma where coming up with the prescriptive policy measures to address what we don't know is even more complicated. And part of this failed state narrative, I think it's important to point out that you know, while obviously Yemen is a very weak state, there's a strong society. I think uh, Ambassador Bodin did a good job of, of laying that out. I think we don't understand the, the power of tribal governance or how tribal systems operate in Yemen. And one of the things that, that is you know, especially concerning to me looking forward is this collapse of tribal governance systems, is that they're not working the way they used to. And if we look at how the, the government in Sana has ruled through these politics of personal relationships, of corruption, of patronage, it's further destroying these systems. I think what I'd like to do in, in the, the, the time that I have is to, to talk about um, basically three intersecting crises that I see in Yemen. Economic, demographic sort of human uh, security, and then hard traditional security. And the scary thing is, I think, as, as uh, you know, all of us have said before, is that these three major problem areas are going to intersect. They're going to intersect in the near future. All of these challenges are getting worse, and they're all heading for a trajectory where they intersect you know, in the next couple of years where Yemen will have to go through a political leadership transition, through a process that has yet to be sort of delineated, and there is no clear successor for, for uh, the current president. 
And before I get into all these problems, I guess I'd like to say that you know, Yemen's, the challenges that Yemen faces are not unique in the region. Every country in the Middle East is going through these one way or another. The crisis in Yemen is that they're all coming together all at the same time. And there's a fear that this will overwhelm the state's capacity to deal. Yemen has a very limited state capacity to deal with more than one problem at a time. And what we've seen in the past is when the government gets, gets um, preoccupied with one issue, it's to the expense of every other issue going on in the country. And we see this especially with the civil war in Saada right now. On economic points, I'd just like to start out by saying that you know, Yemen is an economically unviable state at its very base. It has been reliant on foreign assistance, and it will always be reliant on foreign assistance. This is probably isn't something that many people want to hear, but if you think that the government relies on the sale of hydrocarbons, oil, for 75 to 80% of its income, and then it's quickly running out of oil, the situation doesn't look good. In the past, Yemen has produced, say, 450,000 barrels a day, about five years ago. Today, they produce about 180, if that much, 180,000 barrels per day. And as global oil prices have fallen, Yemen's gotten hit on both sides, selling fewer units per day at fewer dollars per unit. Part of the, the especially concerning part of all this is that no one has given much serious thought to a post-oil economy in Yemen. Yemeni officials will talk about liquefied natural gas or other things, but there's a fear that by the time that oil money, oil resources run out, that liquefied natural gas will not come online in time. Moreover, the volume of sales will not replace oil sales. And I think, you know, when we're talking about economic, you know, issues, it's important to keep in mind that Yemen is the poorest country in the region, has about 35% admitted unemployment, which is probably actually much, much higher. 35% by comparison is about on par with the Great Depression in this country. And economic challenges, you know, I think you get Yemeni officials to, to talk about this, you know, in, in, in discussions. Economic issues are so closely linked to security problems, to demographic development problems, to, to a whole host of other issues. On um, employment, you know, Yemen will need to become a net labor exporter. And there needs to be a way to think in the future about how Yemenis will go abroad to earn money. Yemenis who go abroad send home money that supports six or seven, on average, Yemenis at home. So there needs to be some process to think about this. If running out of oil is sort of a cataclysmic thought, running out of water is even worse. And Yemen will be the first country in modern history to run out of water. The water, the water table falls on average several meters in many places, uh, many, many more in others. About 19 of 21 aquifers in Yemen are not being replenished. Some water basins have already collapsed. And Yemen is increasingly extracting fossil water, which will never be replenished. If you factor in the Yemen, the population is set to double in the next 20 years to 40 million Yemenis triple in three decades to 60 million Yemenis, there is just no more resources to, to, to take care of all of these, the, the, the population. There was a study done by Sana University, I think, a couple years ago. Maybe some on the panel know more about this than I do. But this found that 80% of, of violent conflict in Yemen comes down to water access rights. And there's a lot of concern, and people can't talk about conflicts in the future based on water access. We will see this in Yemen. This will be apparent in Yemen before and in many other places. Uh, I think I'd like to shift to talk about the hard security issues. And it's, it's kind of especially sad to me because this is the issues, these are the issues why anybody cares about Yemen and 
Washington. People care about Yemen because of Al-Qaeda and terrorism. And while I'm going to let Greg speak to the, the Al-Qaeda and the Islamist uh, threat, I'd like to focus on two others, the situation in the South and the, the war in Saudi. Earlier this summer, it seemed that the government was especially preoccupied with what was going on in the South. And the Southern, the Southern secessionist movement has its roots uh, in the, the, the way in which the North has, has in part governed and this feeling that the South has not gotten its fair share. There's this perception that uh, the South is not getting its fair access of uh, revenue from hydrocarbons. There's this perception that Southerners have not had the same access to jobs, to military positions, to uh, pension payments. And I think we'll see this flare up as soon as the current war in Saudi slows down. I think we'll probably get into the South probably more in the question and answer, because I think the, the, the war in Saudi is especially an important thing to focus on. The, this is now you know, the fifth year of this conflict. The, the, the war in Saudi is a, started out between feelings of uh, lack of access and, and lack of development, things that I think you have all over the country. And it started out um, you know, several years ago and has gone through a period of, of uh, successive bouts of fighting. In, at the end of the summer this year, in August, the government relaunched a, a campaign in, in Saudi. Operation Scorched Earth, which if ever there is a bad uh, name for what's going on <laughs> in Saba, this is it. The fighting has been especially indiscriminate. Most often we see you know, the enemy army will run out of munitions, and this is when sort of lulls and the, the fighting uh, uh, come to bear. And you know, there's, when you think about the humanitarian impact, there are 175,000 internally displaced people, probably much higher than that. The war took on an especially sinister turn uh, in the last couple of weeks, when Saudi Arabia became an active belligerent in the conflict. There's some uh, lack of clarity about how this exactly happened. There have been reports that the Saudis were active on the border for some time. However, uh, on November 4th, the, the Saudi military became uh, actively involved in, in the fighting. This is concerning because now the Saudis, as a, as a participant in the conflict, can no longer serve as a, a mediator, as probably some had hoped. The Saudis, um, it's unclear whether this was a, a, a strategic decision to involve the Saudis. It's known that the Saudi military was allowed to transit through Yemeni, to, through, the, sorry, the Yemeni military was allowed to transit through uh, Saudi territory before uh, this fighting started. There were some Saudis who were killed. And it's unclear if this was a decision made to engage Saudi units or if this was uh, more an example of armed Houthis running into armed Saudis and things happening from there. I think the, probably a good place to, to draw to a close is, is by talking one about this issue of whether or not this is a proxy conflict. There's been a lot of discussion in the media about this being a Sunni-Shia conflict or this being an Iran-Saudi uh, proxy conflict. We have, to, well, at least I have never seen anything that convincingly says that the, the Iranians are officially, as a government, supporting what's going on in, in Saba. I'm sure that there's money that comes from Iran. I'm sure that there are, are charitable organizations that raise money that they go to, to Saba. The Iranian media, I think as Mustafa pointed out yesterday, yeah, has obviously been involved in supporting this, especially the Arabic language media. But I think we have yet to see any sort of evidence or proof of Iranian involvement. There are more than enough guns in Yemen to keep this conflict going. And uh, it, it, it it seems that the Yemeni government has tried a number of ways to legitimize this conflict, and Iran is the, the most, recent, um, most recent source of that. 
And the last point I'd like to make is what this has done to the economy. And I think this is the this is the, the really the untold story here is that this war is destroying the Yemeni economy, and it's accelerating all the other issues I talked about. But if we think that there's a, a foreign currency um, foreign currency is being spent at an alarming rate, there's a budget deficit forecast for next year on things that cannot be cut, like salaries, subsidies, pensions. All of the money that's been pumped in to support this war and the toll it's had on the enemy military is, is cataclysmic. And all of this money needs to go towards supporting Yemen's development. And instead, it's going to, to, to support a war that the Yemeni military cannot win and the Houthis cannot win. And what needs to happen is an immediate secession of violence, and then we need to move to mediation. I think on that point, I'll uh, stop for Greg. Thank you, Chris. And your chairs will seats there half by seven or three by five cards that you're free to write questions on and have them they'll be collected and brought to the front and we'll put them to the speakers. Rick Johnson. Uh, thanks, and thanks for coming out. It's a, it's a great honor for me to, to follow Ambassador Bodine and, and, uh, and Christopher Bosa, who I've been uh, big fans of for quite a while. What I've been tasked with, uh, with talking about here um, is Al-Qaeda. But before I get to that, what I wanted to do is essentially just give you uh, my own overview. I know Ambassador Bodine has given hers and, and Chris has given, given his of, of how I tend to view Yemen right now. And I tend to, to see Yemen and think of it, I think the most helpful way to think of it is almost in, there's, there's three layers of crises, if you will. So at the top, you have this elite rivalry on who's going to succeed President Saleh, the different patronage networks, and, and so on. This, this conflict, or at least how I view this conflict, is it's largely going to take place behind closed doors and, and out of sight. Then below that, we have these security challenges that, that Chris talked about, the, the al-Houthi rebellion, the threat of secession from the south, as well as a, a resurgent al-Qaeda threat in the country. And these are the, the threats that I think most of the media tend to focus on. These grab the majority of the headlines, and they'll continue, I think, to grab the, the headlines just given the nature of the threat. But underlying both of these, and, and Chris spoke to this a little bit as well, is what I like to think of, of, a, of a bedrock layer of what might be called structural challenges. This encompasses things like Yemen's rapidly dwindling oil reserves, its nearly depleted water table, chronic unemployment, explosive birth rate, rampant corruption. You have a laundry list of, of things here, antiquated infrastructure. You can go on and on. These problems, um, and I think Chris is, is spot on in, in talking about how dangerous they are, they've been apparent and they've been dangerous for quite some time, but they've never been an immediate cause of concern for the Yemeni government, which has always been overburdened by more pressing political challenges. And so in, in Yemen, I think there's a tendency, particularly for the government, to sort of kick these problems down the road. And I think distant problems in Yemen are easily ignored and, and just pushed off to a vague and fuzzy future. The problem for us now is that we're drawing near to that future, and it's not so vague anymore. I, I am going to get to Al-Qaeda, but I wanted to say just a couple of words about the elite rivalry, because I don't think that's been touched on yet. In a country where his two immediate predecessors were assassinated within a year of each other, President Ali Abdullah Saleh has survived more than 30 years in power by maintaining a great deal of political dexterity and by surrounding himself with relatives, close confidants, and, and childhood friends. 
Ambassador Bodin spoke of this as, as juggling plates. And I think when you read President Saleh's interviews in the, in the Yemeni press, one of the things that he, that he likes to talk about is dancing on the heads of snakes. And this is how he claims that he rules Yemen. But I think what we're seeing now is that both the style and the structure of his rule are now beginning to, to fracture. Yemen's economic straits means that the president has less money to maintain his own patronage network, as well as to play off different factions against each other as a way of sort of keeping these opposition groups perpetually dependent upon him. Within his own Sun Han tribe, I think the once strong bonds of loyalty are now also starting to show signs of strain. His eldest son and a quartet of nephews appear to be preparing for almost a post-Sala scramble for power, while another close relative, Ali Musin al-Ahmad, who I think remains the most powerful military commander in the country in charge of the 1st Armored Division, um, also is in the mix. I think one of the downsides of the way that President Saleh has tended to govern over the past several years has been that doling out military and intelligence commands to relatives tends then to allow these relatives to use their positions almost a, as an instrument of, of personal power. Also, President Saleh's efforts, um, particularly in, I think, the summer of 2008, to sort of tilt this um, behind-closed-doors game in favor of his, of his son Ahmed by forcibly retiring some of the well-placed allies of, of Ali Musin al-Ahmad has, I think, created a great deal of animosity and, and anger within the ranks. Now, if you expand out a little bit further, this struggle, this sort of elite rivalry that I talked about, isn't just taking place within the family. There's another um, traditionally powerful family of 10 brothers that's looking to turn its political, tribal, and business muscle into power. And in the midst of all this sort of familial bickering that we have at the top and this sort of positioning for power, um, the country continues to dissolve into these semi-autonomous regions and various rebellions over the past several weeks. We've had different movements starting up in, in the central plateau area of Taz and Ib. There's a movement out in, out in Marib and in the desert. There's a movement to go along. These are kind of copycat movements of, of the southern movement. So you have all these different regional groups that are sort of sensing whether it's true or not, they at least perceive it to be true, the weakening of President Saleh, and they're essentially trying to poke him and see what it is that they can gain from that. I think Chris did a very good job of, of talking about the Houthis and about the South, and, and so I'll, I'll kind of skip over these, excuse me, and just focus on, on Al-Qaeda. Let me begin here with, with a word of caution. I believe that we're well past the point of a sort of magic missile solution to the Al-Qaeda problem in, in Yemen. Al-Qaeda is now much too strong and much too entrenched to be destroyed like it was in 2002 when, I'm sure as you all remember, when the U.S. assassinated Abu Ali al-Haraki. That first phase of the war in 2001-2002 uh, between the Yemeni government and the U.S. government, which um, I think they cooperated quite closely, uh, Al-Qaeda was fighting a largely reactionary war at that point, and I think that that's changed a great deal, and I'll, I'll get into that in, in just a second. What I believe to be the cause of this is, is essentially lapsed vigilance by both the Yemeni and, and U.S. governments, which allowed al-Qaeda to reorganize and rebuild itself up from the ashes, essentially. What I tend to pick as the, as the starting point for this second phase of the war against al-Qaeda, so essentially you have 2001, 2002, even 2003, there's fighting going on back and forth between the Yemeni government, the U.S. government, and al-Qaeda. And the Yemeni and U.S. government really 
essentially defeated al-Qaeda by the end of 2003 with the arrest of Mohammed Hamdi al-Aqtal in, in November of that year. And then from 2003 all the way up through February 2006, we saw very little, almost no al-Qaeda violence within the country. Part of this is a result of, of the war in Iraq, of course, where Yemenis who wanted to fight were, were drawn off to the fighting there. But even more than that, there was just a lack of, of organizational infrastructure within the country for al-Qaeda to sort of join. That changed in February 2006 when 23 al-Qaeda suspects tunneled out of a political security prison and then walked out the front door of a neighboring mosque to, uh, to freedom. Among those individuals was a man named Nasr al-Waheshi, who'd uh, spent time as uh, uh, an assistant to bin Laden, fought in the Battle of Tora Bora, was eventually sent over the border into Iran, um, and then extradited back to Yemen in November 2003. Along with him was uh, another man, Qasem al-Raimi, who had also spent time in Afghanistan and had trained in some of the camps there. Both of these individuals, along with a few others, did a very good job of, of reorganizing and rebuilding al-Qaeda. And since that point, I tend to think of al-Qaeda as going through three phases. So first you have this rebuilding phase, which took place in 2006 and, and 2007. You had a, a dual suicide attack on some oil and gas facilities in Madhav and Hadramut in September of 2006. You had a couple of statements put out by Qasem al-Raimi really announcing the, the reemergence of the organization in June of 2007 and announcing that this individual, Nasr al-Waheshi, was the new emir of al-Qaeda. And then right after those statements, you had the, the suicide attack on a group of Spanish tourists out in, out in Mara. Then at the beginning of 2008, you see the, the organization move to the next stage, which is essentially making itself relevant within Yemen. This is when they start um, their own bi-monthly journal, Sada Ibrahim, which, which translates roughly into the Echo of Battles. Um, and this, when they released this journal in January of 2008, they followed this up immediately with a sort of attack on a, a convoy of Belgian tourists out in, out in Hadramut. And this, this campaign of 2008, um, I, I, I tend to analyze this as, as really culminating in the September 2008 assault on the, on the U.S. Embassy in Sana'a. And then we move to, to the next phase. And this is essentially where the phase that we're in now, where al-Qaeda is looking to turn itself from, say, a local chapter of al-Qaeda into a regional franchise. And in doing so, it's attempting to demonstrate that it has regional reach, that it can attack from Yemen into Saudi Arabia and into other countries within the Arabian Peninsula. It set this goal for itself in January of 2009. Um, this is when two of the former Guantanamo Bay detainees appeared in a video um, soon after... Um, President Obama signed the executive order um, signifying his, his desire to close Guantanamo, and they announced a sort of merging of the Saudi branches and the Yemeni branches into this group that they now call um, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Since then, the group has been working to make their, their rhetoric a reality, and so we see um, earlier in the summer, in, in August, a, an attempted assassination on, on Saudi's counterterrorism chief Mohammed bin Naif. Um, there was another more recent attack um, that would have involved a, a Guantanamo Bay detainee, Yusuf al-Shikri, that was, that was thwarted by the Saudis. Um, his, his will, as well as the will of another uh, Saudi, were just posted online in the last couple of days. And in each of these three phases, I think al-Qaeda has, has followed a, a predictable pattern in that it's articulated its goals, and then it's worked very hard to square its, its actions to its rhetoric. At the moment, al-Qaeda in Yemen is stronger now than it's ever been in the, in the past. And whether the U.S. realizes it or not, 
It's involved in a, with, in a propaganda war in Yemen with al-Qaeda, and it's losing, and losing fairly badly. Al-Qaeda's narrative, with the notable exception of carrying out suicide attacks within the country, is, I think, broadly popular. Al-Qaeda has managed to put itself on the right side of nearly every issue, whether it's Palestine, whether it's the return of Sheikh Mohammed al-Muad, whether it's corruption, whether it's flooding in Mahra and Hadramut, whether it's flooding in Jeddah. It, it has a narrative that is, um, I think, quite good. At the same time, um, U.S. policy towards Yemen has, I think, been characterized by a, a very dangerous mixture of, of ignorance and arrogance. The U.S. has continued to insist on seeing Yemen only through the prism of counterterrorism, and this, I think, has induced exactly the type of results that it's hoping to avoid by focusing on al-Qaeda to the exclusion of nearly every other threat and by linking most of its aid to this single issue, the United States has almost ensured that it was, will always exist. Instead of imploding, I think, like some Yemeni analysts would have it, I see the country, if it is going to fail, um, or even if it doesn't fail, that it's rather going to explode. And what I mean by this is that Yemen's problems of today will quickly become Saudi Arabia's problems of tomorrow. And I think this is already being foreshadowed by Saudi's involvement in the, in the conflict in the north, as well as by the attempted assassination of Mohammed bin Naif and, and the other more recent attack. In the absence of any easy or obvious solutions, Yemeni advisors and a surprising number of foreign experts are putting their are putting their faith in the country's blind ability to muddle through the multitude of challenges it's going to face over the next several years. This belief, I think, is supported by a very intimate knowledge of the past. Yemen, they claim, has seen much worse and survived. But I believe that such an argument confuses history with analysis. And in Yemen, um, hope, even desperate hope, I don't think is really a strategy. And so on that depressing note, I'll, I'll close.